0: Welcome to the AJP Heart and Cirque podcast. I'm your host, Cara Hansel-Keehan. Today, we'll discuss a new study by Carter et al. titled, Taking to Heart the Proposed Legislation for Permanent Daylight Saving Time. This article was published June 13, 2022. Joining us today are guest editor, Dr. Austin Robinson senior author and associate editor Dr. Jason Carter, and expert Dr. Josie Ann Broussard. Let's get started.
1: Austin? Thanks Kara. So first off I'd like to thank Jason and Josie for joining us on the uh, podcast today and we'll get rolling into the questions. Uh, Jason, can you tell us what the motivation for the paper was and elaborate a little bit on the March 2022 uh, U.S. Senate vote for the Sunshine Protection Act? Yeah, thank you,
2: Austin. And thanks to AJP Hart and Cirque for this podcast. I'll start with the second part in case some of our listeners may not be familiar with what happened in March. But on March 15th, uh, 2022, the United States Senate passed the Sunshine Protection Act that aims to make daylight savings time permanent. So it would get rid of the biannual clock changes that we have in the fall and the spring. And for those that may not be as aware of the difference between those two, daylight saving time is what we are in right now here in the summer. So it's the fast forward of the clocks in the spring of each year, and it would stay at that, giving more light in the evening and less light in the morning. What motivated our group to look at this is that this recommendation, while many have argued and debated the pros and the cons of the biannual clock change, Many have kind of coalesced around a single time, but the professional societies, uh, such as the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, as well as the Society for Research on Biological Rhythms, have both recommended the opposite approach that the U.S. Senate took. And what was most concerning for our group that was discussing this was that the the U.S. Senate passed this during a consent agenda without rigorous debate. And being scientists, of course, we love rigorous debate. And we're curious as to why uh, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, and other society recommendations and position stands were not considered. So we wanted to get this article out for the public as well as the House of Representatives members before they took it up in the House. And it hasn't come up yet. So we're hoping that doubling down and reiterating some of these cardiovascular consequences of a, a permanent switch to daylight saving time and what it would potentially mean could be helpful in informing those conversations moving forward.
1: Thanks for that insightful background on the paper, Jason. Uh, So as a follow-up question, what are some of the documented health consequences of the uh, biannual change in clocks? Well, it's a a complicated
2: story, but you know, most of the evidence that we have Supports the idea that the spring forward shift actually has more higher associations with increased risks of cardiovascular uh, risks. And so things such as an increased risk of myocardial infarctions has been documented, strokes, as well as hospital admissions attributed to AFib. These are all uh, studies with large sample sizes uh, that have been published in recent years showing that that fast forward in the spring has a higher incidence of some of those cardiovascular risk factors. Indeed, one study has actually even showed the opposite, that when we shift from daylight saving time to standard time, when we often see a very acute gain of sleep, there's actually been one study to show a reduction of myocardial infarctions the day uh, afterwards. So these are, is very careful. I want to make sure we understand that these are associational studies. And so we don't want to infer cause and effect here, but they're large enough in their sample size that it's worth paying attention to. All that said, there is some evidence that both time changes are associated with increased cardiovascular risk. So for instance, stroke rates are increased during both the fall and the spring time changes as well as increased risk for thrombolysis treatments during both the time changes in the fall and the spring. So what this tells us is that these findings may actually show that it's circadian misalignment that is contributing importantly, and perhaps even independently to the sleep loss typically associated with the spring change from standard to daylight saving time. So Like all things, the story is not perfectly aligned, but the vast majority of evidence points towards more cardiovascular risk when we have that spring forward time change, which is what's being proposed to be permanently
1: adopted. So in general, when we think about poor sleep, short sleep, or high sleep variability in terms of either sleep duration or sleep bedtime or poor sleep efficiency, uh, we know that there are some physiological consequences of that. And Jason highlighted several uh, AJP heart papers over the years that have published some of these findings. Uh, Josie, could you touch on some of the additional work that's out there on the effects of poor sleep and metabolism?
3: Sure. And thank you so much for having me. Yes, really, there's quite a lot of research now that suggests that people who either don't get enough sleep or sleep at the wrong time of day, so like Jason mentioned, people who are uh, circadian misaligned. Have a higher risk for many different diseases, including the cardiovascular diseases that Jason mentioned, but also they're more at risk for becoming obese and more at risk for developing diabetes, as well as kidney disease and certain types of cancers. A lot of this work really just started in the late 90s. So, over the last 20 years, is when we've really gotten a bit more insight into this risk for developing cardiometabolic disease when people are getting insufficient sleep.
1: Great. Thank you for that uh, additional insight on some of the effects of sleep on metabolic health. Uh, So this is a question for both Josie and Jason. Uh, What are primary arguments for using standard time as opposed to daylight savings time? Well, one of the
2: things, Austin, that we tried to do in the perspective paper here is not only talk about the cardiovascular risks, which is applicable to our readership, but also some of the other things, such as the higher increased traffic accidents and a suicidal thoughts and ideation that are associated with circadian misalignment and/or reduced sleep. But one of the things that I, I really found most compelling that we tried to highlight is the impact of this change forward on what it would do to morning light. And I'm much more in the in the realm of sleep than I am circadian misalignment per se. But the thing we know about this is people who live on the western edges of time zones, there will be points in the year, particularly in the winter, where it won't get light until 930 in the morning. And one of the things that we actually need is morning light, it plays a critical role in synchronizing our internal clocks. And daylight saving time leads to that misalignment between our social clocks and our internal clocks in synchronizing to the sun. And so you can imagine by adopting daylight saving time, what we'll end up having is individuals who will, it'll be 930 in the morning before we get any light. And that's problematic for our children and adolescents who need that light to stimulate them because we've shown, not not our lab, but others have shown that there's a lot better mood and academic performance and reduced adverse behaviors associated with children that are getting adequate sleep and as well as staying circadian aligned. So I think for me, the adoption of the standard time, while it's going to um, cut out some of the sunlight in the evenings, it's going to back it up so that we remain having more sunshine in the early morning, which is really, really critical. If we were to adopt that that daylight saving time as the current legislation states, it is going to be really detrimental to morning sunlight.
1: Great, and Josie, can you comment on the timeliness of Jason's perspective paper and the AHA recently rolling out Life's Essential Eight, which now includes sleep as an essential health behavior?
3: Sure. Yeah, it, it actually really couldn't be more timely with Jason's paper coming out this summer, because in June of 2022, the Life's Essential Eight that Austin just mentioned now includes sleep duration as an important health behavior to be considered for optimal cardiovascular health and optimal overall health.
1: So as a follow up question, I know that all of us on the podcast today come from an exercise science background, so I'm curious about the potential bidirectional relation between sleep and exercise. So what do we know about the ability of exercise to attenuate some of the consequences of poor sleep and how the permanent time change may influence people's ability to exercise and maintain their exercise habits?
3: Sure. I'll jump in and talk a bit about this because I love this question. And it's a question that I get at a lot of sleep conferences where people ask, what if I wake up early? What if I shortchange my sleep to exercise? So essentially, what if I get up too early or go to bed too late? And so we actually decided to do that exact study where we first asked, are people who exercise protected in some way from the negative health consequences of sleep loss? So It's actually unpublished data, but I'm happy to talk about it here, where we essentially recruited participants in and put them through an insufficient sleep protocol. And we found consistent with previous studies that when participants come in and their sleep is restricted, they start to look pre-diabetic. So their insulin sensitivity goes down. In other studies, we've even found that the tissue itself becomes less responsive to insulin, But when we took people who exercise and we sleep restricted them, they were still impaired. There was a little bit of protection from exercise, but I think the important thing to note is that sleep loss still won. So there was still an impairment with sleep loss and even exercise, which we know is the most insulin sensitizing behavior you can do was not enough to kind of completely prevent the impairment of sleep loss.
1: Wow, that's uh, really interesting. So we all know that exercise is beneficial, but it seems like it can't counteract at least completely the negative effects of sleep loss. And uh, full disclosure, that question was from graduate student Merrill Culver. Uh, so for the last question uh, for Jason, let's just say that the Sun Protection Act does not pass in the House of Representatives. Is there anything that we could do to alter the influence of the current daylight savings and... Uh, the biannual clock changes? Could we potentially move them to Saturday instead of Sunday or something like that to give people more time over the weekend to adjust before the uh, work week?
2: Boy, Austin, I think that's actually a a very interesting question and a great suggestion you've made. Uh, As as many of us are fully aware, we currently uh, change the clocks at 2 a.m. on a Sunday. Right, I mean, so it's so it's a Saturday night, but but two a.m. suddenly the clock changes forward or backwards, only giving us one more day of Sunday to maybe sleep in uh, compared to the work week. I think that your suggestion—I don't know that it's been discussed um, broadly—of moving the time change to say a Friday evening and it switches at Saturday at two a.m. and giving two days worth of recovery. I don't know why we haven't done that. It actually seems like a very logical option. Maybe there's reasons for that, but I think it, it, I think we could mitigate this uh, further by by allowing some transitions. I mean, this is really similar to what you'd have in a jet lag situation, right? And but it's just it's an avoidable jet lag situation. It's it's not it's something that we do on an annual basis that really doesn't have um, now a ton of of relevance. People talk about the economics of it. And we know that, and we talk about this in the article, that there are multiple factors pressuring a permanent change in one direction or the other, or the biannual switch. But I think that's a great suggestion. And I don't know that it's been explored. Another thing I've heard some people talk about at the sleep meetings is well why don't we split the difference with a half hour difference in both directions and just leave it there and right? so that you get a little bit less in the morning a little bit less in the evening but it's not one of the two extremes so i do think that there are options for us to continue to think about if this doesn't pass the house of representatives but the main the main thing i think most of us are coalescing around is that we shouldn't be artificially exposing this circadian switch in a jet lag type of situation, if it's not absolutely necessary from a health perspective.
1: All right. Thanks, Jason. I um, have to give another disclosure that that question was also from uh, Merrill. And I hadn't heard of the idea of just using 30 minutes as opposed to the one hour. So I think that could also be helpful, just kind of anecdotally thinking about recovering. Uh, Jason, was there anything else that we didn't discuss on today's podcast that you would like to mention? just that I've
2: been surprised at the attention that this topic has drawn. I, you know, Kara is, is one of the most active people on Twitter. I know, and she's convinced us and the editorial board at AJP Heart and Cert to be more active. And, and I've gotten more comments and tweets and retweets on this than anything else I've posted. So clearly not tweeting interesting information most of the time, but it's been fun to see. I've had a grandmother talk to me about how this is right on that they don't want their granddaughter, you know, waking up and needing to go to school in the dark. So uh, Fox Chattanooga interviewed me on this one. So it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. And and I would just add finally that EGP Heart and Cirque is going to be launching a call for papers on sleep and circadian physiology as it relates to cardiovascular and vascular consequences next spring at the launch of the APS 2023 meeting. So stay on alert for that. I hope we'll have lots of
1: submissions there. I'd like to thank both of our guests today and the listeners to the AJP Heart and Cirque podcast.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the AJP Heart and Circ podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by Ray Mitchell. Catch the latest episodes of our podcast at physiology.org slash journal slash AJPHeart.